On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Southern Storm, a bold, liberating rock, shot through with blues, soul, and gospel. And now, your hosts for the show, Brian Jones and Jason Johannes. Welcome back to this episode of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock Podcast. Um, thank you, everybody, for the downloads and participating on the Facebook page. We have cracked 1,000 members. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah. Great, man. That's that's awesome. A thousand people is a lot. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, definitely enjoying that. It's it's been awesome. I think the best thing too is all the music that gets posted to the Facebook page. I love it. Yeah, I mean, de- you know, there definitely definitely you know some different kind of you know stuff within the genre, which we love. Which we love, including a blues artist. I'm not going to say their name that got posted, I think, yesterday or today that we're going to have on sometime over the next couple of months that just confirmed with us, too. Okay, cool. Cool. Say, I'm going to leave it a secret, but if you paid right. the pod, or the Facebook page on the 17th or 18th of January, there was a posting by somebody that will be on the show. Right. Um, we got to mention a uh, very sad uh, Rowdy Cope from the Steelwoods uh, passed away suddenly on a, an unexpectedly um just a few days ago now we're recording this intro on the uh, uh 18th of january so by the time you hear this this comes out on the 25th so uh so it'll be a week since then but uh very sad um and uh our thoughts and prayers go out to the band and you know their families and his family it's you know, it's just right on the heels of Doc of uh, losing Doc Lovett, and so a couple more punches to the gut from 2021, and we just uh, want to throw our condolences out there and our tribute and in his memory, and we just wanted to say that. So, yeah, a lot of the artists that we've had on the show so far have either played with those guys or are fans of those guys too, because I've seen a, a ton of tributes uh, come in on social media. Yeah, so we move forward with heavy hearts, um, but so what's our, we have a theme. We have a theme, it is, it is hard rock and metal bands that have been inspired 
by blues and southern rock music? Well, uh, I can put my two cents in on that. I mean, for me, you know, like we've already discussed, like, you know, when I was 14, like my first music crush was Rat. You know, and to me, the first band that we're also big fans of mutually that came out was Tesla, you know, and and like, hey, here's this band that that they're not all dolled up because, you know, kind of funny side story, like during homecoming week in my high school, like you have like dress up week, different theme every day. And I think one day was like wild and crazy day. So I tried to look like that and I'd like poof up my hair, you know, I had short hair, but like poofed up on top. I tried to like, I'd cut up like you know, my jeans, acid wash and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, I really don't like rock this look at all. You don't want to be dolled up. You don't want to be that type of rock. Band. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then, so no. So when Tesla comes out, you know, they're the really the first thing where it's like, these guys look like guys. They look like the guys that are, you know, working at the car Blue shop. Collar guys, the street, yeah. Blue you collar know, guys. And their sound was very organic, you know, and they come from Sa- Sacramento and, you know, if you're into them, you, you kind of figure out what they listen to and whatnot. Um, also, of course, um, Cinderella from Blonde Cold Winter On and actually the song Shake Me off of Night Songs, you know, you know, as, Tom, as time would go on, you, you read interviews with Tom Kiefer and, you know, he would say like, hey, you know, I'm a huge Stones fan, you know, and, and when I when he was on uh, that metal show, the Eddie Trunk show. Um, he uh, said the first concert he went to was the Some Girls, the Stone Some Girls tour in 1978. So those guys, um, Kicks from Baltimore, you know, you, you know, look at those guys, listen to those guys. I've seen them play once live, and I swear Steve Whiteman is like has studied Mick Jagger. <laughs> I mean, if you if you had like video side by side. Mick Jagger and Steve Whiteman, it's like he's got his moves, which, you know, how can you help it, you know? Right. To have that kind of that kind of influence. Um, some of the great white stuff run the once bitten yep. and and then that's fair. Twice shy, plenty of blues inspired. You know, stuff, they sure. they have they have that. Um, you know the LA Guns record after Cocked and Loaded, Hollywood Vampires is actually some some good stuff on there. Well, some of the riffs and the songs can be definitely taken from blues type of music too, and Tracy Guns, and I mean you could see that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, and specific uh, specifically when we're talking about you know Angus Young and Keith Richards kind of riffs, you know, you know uh, Cinderella, you know Gypsy Road, and then Kicks Blow My Fuse. Mm-hmm. Those riffs are an Angus and Keith riff, totally. You know. Yep. Um, you know, Way Cold Jr. by Rat has a is a that's a blues song, man. Yeah, you that know is it is. Blues. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe Faster Pussycat had a little bit of that vibe, but they're kind of. What about Motley Crue? Um, Mick sure. Mars played some slide, did a lot of blues licks and songs. Well, Mick Mars, you know, he he played in bands in Los Angeles all through the seventies, you know. And his, you know, real name's Bob Deal, and he, yeah, he played in bands as long as, you know, probably even before Van Halen came up at Quiet Riot, and, you know, so I'm sure. And he always, you know, says, like, Mike Bloomfield is one of his favorite guitar players. So, you know, yeah, and Dr. Feelgood specifically, you know, that that uh, that uh, has that, more of that sound, more of that kind of sound, you know. 
slice of your pie and I think we even the cover of Brown Brownville Station Smoke in the Boys Room has a little bit of almost like a Southern rock kick to it at the same time. Oh, for too. sure, yeah. You know, and a lot of some of a lot of their later tracks too. Uh, Doctor Feel Good, Girls, 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 they had a, probably a little bit more influencing on mixed guitar playing than some of the earlier stuff that was a lot more heavy and punk. And so there's yeah. one other there's one other band, and uh, which just might be a segue into our guests. I think it. I think it would be perfect. So, do you want? Do you want me to toss it out, or are you going to? Uh, please go ahead. All right. Well, there's a band that came out towards the tail end of the '80s that had a lot of cred from a lot of their peers, even though I think they were unfairly lumped into the metal hair metal category. And also had a lot of musician and, and rock music or rock writer fans. Uh, it's a band out of out of LA called Junkyard. And if a lot of you guys might know Junkyard because there's uh, some famous photos of Axl Rose wearing one of their shirts. Uh, they had a couple hit songs, a couple hit videos on MTV, but they kind of came into to popularity right as the candle of hair metal and metal music was starting to fade away to uh, the Seattle grunge sound. And, you know, we didn't even mention Guns N' Roses, which, you know, of course, they're actually, well, you know, I guess after... I mentioned Tesla and Cinderella, you know, Guns N' Roses certainly like freaking kicked the door down, you know, and, and then obviously, you know, they influenced, you know, some of the faster pussycat kind of vibe. And I think they, I don't know if they necessarily like influenced Junkyard because they started out at the same time. But you right. know, another thing, when Junkyard came out, they, it had the same effect on me as Tesla. It's like, yep. look at these guys right. that look like guys, you know, and they're wearing denim cuts and, you know, and the music's not poppy. You can hear hear the blues, a little punk, a little you know, a little southern rock like Skinner and stuff thrown into it too. Yeah, and they, they got a very kind of like it's a very unpolished sound, very you know, very tough sound. And and even now I'm listening to more of their last record that they did in 2017, High Water. And I'm you know that, that's the thing that always that is very common for me. It's like. I have to listen to something and listen to it. And all of a sudden, boom, like I get it. Like I've talked about that with Blackberry Smoke and, uh, you know, Tyler Bryant and the Shakedown. And and so, yeah, I'm like, listen, that's in my, my car here for three, four days. I'm like, this record's really good, man. Oh, you yeah. Know, it's like, you know, so. It's got a lot of yeah. punk to it. That album, the last album's got a lot of punk. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we talked to those guys and enjoyed it very thoroughly. And, you know, and then. You know, I'm not one to really like, you know, go around saying like, hey, I'm really good at this or that. But I think we're pretty damn good at what we're doing in this podcast. And, you know, we're kind of like on a pretty big role here in the last few guests here. Chris Robertson and, you know, and, you know. Uh, uh, Andy Mike, Aldor. Yeah. Mike Ross. Mike Ross. Yep. Yep. Now Whiskey Foxtrot. Well, yeah, Whiskey Foxtrot. Pat yeah. Mazingo, the drummer of Junkyard and Tim. Mosher, the guitar player who started in 2000, but as you'll hear, pretty much was with them every step of the way. Some, some yeah. You know, and I've really, you know, we can, you know, we talked about like, you know, the, how much we enjoyed the, our, you know, guitar special episode and, you know, our State of America episode and, and Andy and, and Mike and Whiskey Foxtrot and stuff. And, and, and they're all great and they're all good, but they're just something about this, this, this chat we had with the guys in Junkyard that's like, how soon can we talk to these guys again? I'm just like, <laughs> like we've always known them. Yeah. I mean, this is like, they're all great. They're all great. But there's just something about this vibe that was like, just kind of put it like 
up over the top a little bit, like just totally craving to talk to these guys again, man. I just love this band. So um, I know all you guys will enjoy our uh, discussion, our chat with Pat Muzingo and Tim Mosher from Junkyard. Let's go! Welcome back to this week's episode uh, of the All Things Blues and Southern Rock podcast, or I actually should say welcome back to the guest segment on this week's episode. As always, I toss this over to Jason and tell the listeners who we have with us this week. Yep, it's my pleasure to introduce two dudes from a band I've loved for a long time. We have Pat Muzingo and Tim Musher from the band Junkyard. Welcome, guys. Hey, how are you? And it's Tim Mosier, and I even crashed your name when I went over with you. Tim <laughs> Mosier, damn it! What the hell are we going to do with you, man? I, I, <laughs> you know, if you talk to my wife, she'll say there's nothing that can be done with me. It's a lost cause. Lost cause. <laughs> so thanks Sorry. for getting on today, man. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having us. Yes, thank you so much. So the first thing I like, I wanted to say, like, I have to compliment you guys because, you know, just taking high water as an example, you go from walk away, you know, and then later on styrofoam cup. It's like you guys are always junkyard, but you can be, you have this punk flavor, you have that little bit of blues, you have the rock, hard rock, a little bit of Southern. And that's really, uh, I'm really impressed by that, that, you know, that very diverse uh, music, but still at being junkyard. Well, thank, well, thank you. you. We appreciate that. I mean, I we don't think about it too much. I think if thinking gets in the way of us doing good, so um, <laughs> we um, we really just follow our gut. You know, uh, the original plan, the original template musically of the band is really solid and founded on good things, whether it's southern or punk or you know um, hard rock, AC. You know, those are all really good. Uh, cornerstones to build on and so we we have a pretty good uh, language that we pull from but you know we like lots of different stuff too we did come up in punk but we were also kids we're 70s kids too so yeah that aerosmith nugent skinnerty thing is just always it was just there there's no getting away from that and because we were that's that's the music that was happening with kids and then as we've gotten older we you know we listen a lot more I remember very well, especially back in the old days. I don't. We didn't listen to like current records in 1989. We were listening to Steve Earle records and yeah, yeah. stuff like that. I mean, I remember going with David to see Hank Williams Jr. in 1989 or 90. You know, like we listened to a lot of you know songwritery kind of. It was. It wasn't even called Americana back then. I don't know what it was. You know, but we liked was, all stuff. It was and, basically back then, wasn't it? Kind of uh, the category they put it in was uh, college music. All I mean, it was alternative, but it was almost like you know, it was college music. Yeah, I bands like X started to allow country influences yeah. in, and even the Replacements had some of that rootsy thing. And then, of course, things like Exile on Main Street, and then 
we would follow that lineage back to Graham Parsons. So that stuff all kind of was in the mix. That with Powerade throwing some Motorhead and, you know, second helping. And you kind of get sort of where we were. And then always just the punk thing that's in our DNA. It's sort of. So we we don't think about it too much, and I, I guess it I guess it shows out, you know. Yeah. So I want to kind of do a, a kind of a, a Pulp Fiction order of things, like start from when you guys <laughs> got back together, and then we'll go Perfect. back to the beginning. I mean, so I, I guess I would uh, go to you, Pat, to you know gotcha. talk about uh, when when the band you know started come together when you started thinking about putting it back together in two thousand. Am I correct there? Yep. Yeah. We uh, we basically it was very. Spinal Tappish in the in the sense that we had not spoken to each other since we got dropped and uh, 2000 rolled around and we got an offer. The first the first offer that we got that kind of like, you know, perked our ears was uh, uh, playing as direct support to the super suckers at the House of Blues. And granted, we you know, we we you know, we got dropped in 92. The last time we all saw each other or were in the same room as Junkyard uh, was, you know, 92. So. Between those times, we we all kept in touch with each other. Um, we never really hated each other. We didn't have fights or anything like that. And uh, when 2000 rolled around, we got that opportunity. At that point, you know, Brian's got a day job, so he couldn't quite do it because uh, of his band. But uh, it, the next logical choice was would be having Tim play his guitar, uh, basically taking Brian's place, so to say. But uh, that even goes backwards into the band history because Tim was pretty much around all the time. I mean, I don't, I don't remember a point in uh, the band's history going back to probably 88, 89, where Tim wasn't around us uh, for, he was always around us like when we were having historical things, like when we got signed, uh, playing shows. We also, you know, his band, Broken Glass, used to play with us all the time. We would always request them to uh, play as um as a uh, support but so the, when you know fast forward to 2000 obviously tim is in and uh then we also got an opportunity to go to japan so it was like wow there's actually something going on you know there's some kind of buzz even though we haven't done shit in uh many years so at that point we kind of um that was the beginning of what you're seeing right now um as far as the lineup we had a couple guitar changes and a couple member changes here and there but uh that's kind of the 2000 story you know that was a kickoff to what we thought was going to be summer vacations and it actually turned out to be <laughs> you know we turned out to be a, rock, a working rock and roll band working more than we probably did back in the day so and you guys said like before you know you you did the studio record high water in 2017 you had like a handful of recordings here and there you want to talk about those yeah what was that tim that was like tried and true we uh did, yeah we did we would go in and we we did an ep when we first got back together we did an ep and we um that was pretty kind of ad hoc like we kind of we were doing some shows and then we said let's go and see if we can record and it was on some indie label, Heat Slick, what they call it, I think. And yeah, yeah. They don't exist anymore. And that was, it was kind of, you know, we did an acoustic version of Simple Man. So it wasn't like we were going deep. It wasn't ever meant to right. be a big thing. I think it was sort of for ourselves to put our toe in the water. But that was years ago. Yeah. And um, I think the idea behind what became High Water was someone approached us because we had been doing shows and... Um, we had been to Europe a few times, and 
what had happened is Brian had kind of circled back around and when he would do a bad religion album, he would often just stay at my house because they did him in LA and he lived on the East Coast. And we're all, we're all, you know, we're very, we've been very good friends for, you know, forever. And we're both from DC. So we have a lot in common in a lot of different ways. And we would talk about, you know, would it be cool if we could do something, you know, some new songs with Junkyard? And at that moment, someone said, hey, would it was a label saying, would you guys be interested in making a record? Well, we ended up not, that label ended up not really working out, but it did begin the process of writing. And so I'd get little memos on my phone from Brian's phone on tour, on phone on tour. He'd be in his, his hotel room and play a riff or two. And one of them was faded, was one of those riffs. And then he would come into town and we would kind of scale up the song and David would come in. And so that was really it. And so we went in and cut that as a standalone. And The River was a song that David had in pocket, like he uh, sang it to me and we figured it out. But he'd had it in his head, lyrics, the whole the basic melodic structure. We went and cut that in a weekend. Mm-hmm. And originally, and we put that out as a standalone single and then really not really knowing what would be next. And I was kind of thinking, well, we had other songs that had been kind of in the in the mix to be the A side. It faded just end up being the one, which seemed like a good choice. And it got a lot of attention. You know, people liked it. I think people were shocked to hear us back and yeah. uh, hopefully think this strong come back with as strong a statement as that and that kind of got the ball going like well let's continue on with this and so we kind of kept the writing process going now junkyard's writing process is glacial it doesn't really happen because <laughs> there's not one writer per se it's a combination of a lot of different things and um so it has to feel good it has to happen in the pace that it happens and also intermingling with the fact that you know, sometimes it's done, like I said, through email and just the chance that someone's in town and we can work together that way. And um, we slowly started to build these songs. And I was like, well, where are we going to do this? And I just saw that Rhino Bucket and the Super Suckers were on a label called Acetate. And I just went on the website and sent them an email saying, I'm Tim from Junkyard and sent them three songs or something. I said, do you want to put out a Junkyard record? And they called me right back and said, are you kidding me? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so that was the level of our business plan, you know, yep, yep. and that's how we started. And then things became and got going in earnest and because we, we, we started to have a release date and we started to really flesh out where the rest of the songs would go. And um, so, um, then we kind of got we got pretty headlong into the actual recording process, which was kind of all over the map too. It wasn't done traditionally, but in the end, it came out where it came out, and um, uh, so that's how it all kind of happened. I mean, it was it was a, a very slow burn until the very end, where it was very a very uh, small period of time where we were putting the final touches and bringing in the last bits of songs, you know. And um, I mean, one of the songs on the album was about to be left off the album because it was so old and that time had gone by and I had almost forgotten about it. And the song Kindness of the Dead, which is actually my favorite song on the record now, um, Mm -hmm. was one of the first songs. It was maybe going to be the A side with the with Faded and it came back. And the uh, it's funny, the guy did the cover art because it was one of the original songs and they just give them song titles to use as placeholders while doing the layout for a cover. So the balance is right. And so we, we sent him the song. He got the songs, too, just to give him a vibe of what the record's about while he's making the art. And we sent him the final record. He goes, like, what happened to this song, Kindness of the Dead? And I'm like, oh, shit, I forgot about that one. Yeah. And really, the record was basically in the can. And I went back and I said, oh, this is a fucking good one. 
And so I drug Ringo back in the studio. We recut a bunch of it and sang some back because it was still pretty amorphic at that point. Yeah. And, it, and so, like, you could say it was, it, and that ended up being the last song. And we ended up pulling Rome's Burning off the album and putting Kindness of the Dead on there. Originally, it would be Rome's Burning there. So, right. It, as, as usual with us, it's all over the gaff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I have a question, kind of what you said, Tim, a little bit about the songwriting process is glacial and, you, and there's not really one songwriter. Because when I listen to your albums, it is a mix of rock, blues, punk, country, southern rock. So by saying that, you know, I guess, I guess basically the type of song that comes out, is that really depending on who's bringing that idea to the band? It's, it's uh, interesting. It's interesting how that works. I mean, um, I'll say this, you know, uh, let's just take High Water because that's a really simple. We could go back further in the catalog. And occasionally David has a fully thought out song. Like it's in his head. And he'll sing it to me, and he, but he can't play an instrument, so I'll just find the chords underneath it and we'll slowly structure a song around that kind of methodology. And, um, and that's, that, that's great, too, you know, because he has an idea, but his, you know, his instructions are, you know, faster, no, a little bit harder, right. things like that, like more, you know, uh, not the action, you know, lot, not a lot of that kind of crafty talk, like let's go to the fourth there or things like that. But I like that. I've worked with guys who don't have, you know, quote unquote, that style of, of, of ability. And I always like that kind of writing as well. There's no there's no right or wrong answer to writing a good song. Mm -hmm. Ryan a lot of times come up with riffs like he'll send me a riff or a bunch of riffs. And I just will listen. If something tricks my ear up, I'll go, oh, and I'll kind of build off that. I mean, it might just be an eight bar riff and then I'll come in and we'll kind of. You know, I'll build it out and say, well, I go here with the chorus. And so it really and, you know, I'll get these memos. Um, Todd sends me memos with like <laughs> I have these ideas and you'll have it'll be like a stream of consciousness, him playing bass or whatever, you know, and then there'll be something that just turns my head and I'll go, oh, that's it. And that was a song cut from the same cloth as that. It was. Yeah. It had that kind of like Aerosmith, draw the line mm -hmm. era of riffing. Right. Yeah, and it yeah. was, that was part of a larger, much longer piece. And I just took that one phrase out and I said, this is great. And so he would then he would come over and we I'd say, this is great. Where do we go? And then we kind of build it from there. And then we would send it to David. And I think that one per se, I had a chorus lyric idea. I had the cut from yeah. the same cloth. And that takes you a lot of different places. And so. You know, so it's really kind of an amalgam, you know, and, and some songs have one principal writer and some are really a, a combination and then some are really a, a division of two or three, you know. So it's but like I said, there's such a good basis uh, that the band sound wise is based on that. We all sort of know where it's supposed to end up and what and we all have so much common like ex life experience, musical experience. That when I say this, like when I like what like I said, like, oh, it reminds me a little bit of something off draw the line. We all know what that is. Right. And then and we, so we, we we can focus in on, you know, we, we have the, such a common set of language, musical language that we could focus in really quickly on what the real heart of a song is supposed to be about. And I think the most important thing is, is that it's honest. You know, we don't yeah. do things that don't feel real to us because it doesn't get out of the door because it doesn't sound any good. Really, you know, so if David can commit to the vocal and all the things that require it to be a junkyard song, that all has to be there, too. So it's 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 a kind of a, there's a bit of I don't I hate saying magic or kind of like a little bit of just, you know, 
pixie dust, like whatever. Like <laughs> then it kind of happens or it doesn't. And well, it's almost it yeah. We're almost like we're almost like our own bullshit detectors when we write stuff. It's like you know when we play it, we all know when it's when it's not going to work because we just look at each other. It's like nope, on to the next idea. I mean, it doesn't. Yeah. It's you know for for our for the five of us, like Tim said, we we we're all you know basically we're all the same age. I think Todd may be a little bit older. So our, our references, you know, Tim will say, oh, you know, that one Aerosmith riff where you know, Kramer goes bop, 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 or whatever. It's like immediately we all know, because well, we were also in, you know, being, being on the road and throwing music in and listening to every, you know, everybody else's choices. We all get it. We don't even have to, half of the time, we don't even have to say anything. It's just like, hit that, go do that. Do a four bar Paul Cook styles thing or whatever. And it's like done. So, yeah. you know, and when we get out of that wheelhouse, and we try to do stuff that's a little different, it ends up just rolling right back to our influences and we mold it that way. But uh, it's, uh, I, and, that, and that goes from, you know, years of, years of uh, being in the same van together, the same hotel room, just knowing each other, you know. Well, it's a true band effort. I mean, it's, it's collaboration at this point. It's not one person really driving everything. No, it's not yeah. at all. Yeah, it really is a... It's everyone, everyone bit makes it the thing, you know, and I think that's what's the key is, you know. Yeah, and I love the 70s Aerosmith references that you guys keep throwing out because I'm going to say a couple things here. One, makes a lot of sense. Listen to your albums like you can really hear that 70s rock, the Aerosmith, the blues based rock come through. And two, that's really how I became a, a fan of you guys. I, I was a fan of you guys right out of the gate in 89 when uh, the first album came out. I'm like, this is great. Like, this makes a lot of sense to me. I was listening to a lot of heavy stuff or what you'd call the hair metal and stuff like that. But I was always drawn more towards the 70s style rock or the blues based rock at the same point, too. Like, kind of what Cinderella became was always a big Aerosmith fan. Love the mm -hmm. Stones. And like, when you said that about Aerosmith, 70s Aerosmith, everything really came together for me. It does. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's I, I think at that point, you know, Tim and I and David uh, are the same age. Jimmy's Jimmy and Todd are a little older. But, you know, when you think of at least when I when I pop on, you know, an Aerosmith album, it just basically brings me back to being a stoner in eighth grade skateboarding around. <laughs> learning how to play the drums you know? up. as you have drones and the skateboard behind you in the picture <laughs> we were all and raised a in a free punk world to be quite honest like when yeah. we were 12 and 13 the hardest music there was was probably nugent double i've gonzo and aerosmith yeah. box i mean that was the hard stuff you know what i mean and you could get a little more esoteric with some of the glamier stuff whatever but like we grew up sort of suburban kids-ish, and that was, you know, as a 12-year boy, you're looking for the hard stuff. Kiss, you know, that was hard. That was the stuff, maybe a bit of Sabbath. But we always – so that's why when punk happened for us, it was so ferocious that we were all just sucked right in. We were the perfect age for, like, that kind of aggression and anger, and that took us a whole different place. And we kind of left that because punk offered a different set of aesthetics that were fun, too, and they were our own, especially hardcore because it was – it was mm -hmm. from yeah. our people it was coming from. And that was really, that was appealing. So that was the beginning of like, hey, why can't I be like Joe Perry someday? You know, right. I mean, yeah. though we didn't think that. We were thinking I could be Mick Jones or Steve Jones or whatever, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big thing because those guys were like, you know, the, the, the 70s arena bands. They were like demigods. They were pretty mm -hmm. untouchable, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was nice to feel like there was a place in it for you. And that's mm -hmm. what punk gave us. 
And the fact that we go back to all that stuff, it's just because it's so intrinsic to our DNA. You know, there was yeah. nothing else to do but sit in a room and listen to fucking albums. And that was a great thing, you know. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the, the Aerosmith reference, because I know when I, the first couple of times when I heard Cut from the Same Cloth, I, I was thinking, what's that? Something like uh, <laughs> Kings and Queens. Yeah. Oh right, right. Um, yeah. yeah. I love. I always loved that song. That that Great was song. the song yeah. that album I loved, and I loved that droney thing that they do in that. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta fucking nick that someday because that's great. Yeah. And it's that's a very so... punk thing too. Just that oh, yeah. crazy guitar. I mean, I know Joe Perry loved punk when it happened, so he was a he was, and that is a post punk record too. That was seventy eight or seventy nine. So punk was out. So you know. It wasn't a total stretch. And plus, let's just keep in mind, Aerosmith was considered a, a second-rate New York Dolls when they came out. They weren't considered, yeah. you know, a metal band. They were part of that kind of more New York glam, though they're from Boston, that whole thing. You know, Stone's Acolyte, Next Generation, post-glam thing that a lot of people were doing then. That eventually became punk. They just got arena big. So yeah. Yeah, there's a, that was always, that's always, and it's just like one of the things, like I, like I said, you know. You listen to Styrofoam Cup, like there's a lot of Graham Parsons in there. I mean, that's yeah, there what, is, yeah. that, I mean, I we spent years grinding on Grievous Angel, you know, at least I did. You know, those things, those records were real big and Copperhead Road, that kind of stuff of that time, and then those acolytes, the not traditional country, which was for a while was popular there. Dwight and Hint and Steve, right. and, you mm -hmm. know, there were there was some there was some cool shit happening right then. And you could go down the on the strip and I'd I used to see Dwight Yoakam in the guitar shop. So there was a certain country element still floating around in L.A. because L.A. had, a you know, the Palomino and all that shit was still going on. Yeah. There was always that was always there, too, you know, and mm -hmm. whether it's a connection through Exile on Main Street back from that, probably. I mean, we, I think that's probably the record we listen to more than any record is Exile probably, on Main Street. Yeah. yeah, that's my favorite Stones album by far and away. Yeah, it was really yeah. like on basically all the time. Yeah, and yeah. so it, if you listen to a lot of the records that, from both, you know, from my band, Broken Glass, and the two Junkyard albums, especially the second Junkyard album, you hear a lot of Exile on Main Street in there. Oh, for and sure. That, you know, that was our, that was to us the, the ultimate, you know. You know, if you'd gotten us three years early, we probably would have said London Calling, but, you know. Right, yeah. Just <laughs> so, you know. So what is, you know, Brian Baker, what's his involvement now? He's still writing. He, he plays some spots with you guys, but he's not out on, when you guys go out on the road, he's not out there with you, or... No, uh, yeah, it's he shows up. With, I mean, it's like the last time he sat in with us was at M3. That was what 2017. It just worked out. It worked out. He was in town. We were there. And uh, prior to that, he did. Uh, uh, he played with us. Uh, I think four shows in LA, and it just yeah. worked out because, like, like Tim said, he was out here doing some bad religion business, staying with Tim because he doesn't want to stay at a hotel. So. We were like, well, let's, you know, book, book us at the whiskey. So we did a couple whiskey shows with him and we did a Viper Room show with him. And, uh, you know, like, you know, once once High Water really started to like know what was going to happen, it became pretty obvious, especially towards the end of the record, that we needed a viable touring version of the band because he right. toured so much that we, there, we would never be able to go out. So it was decided then, like, let's have this transition to this new touring version of the band. So he plays on High Water, but Jimmy's also plays on High Water. Yeah. And so it's a mixed bag of the two. And because um, it was a conscious decision, like, he's not going to be able to go on the road. But he still writes. He wrote yeah. the, a large part of the music for the B-side of this new single we have. That, And he came out a while ago, and we sat around and had a writing session and, and 
came up with a bunch of ideas or discussed ideas. So, you know, they still come in through the iPhone every now and again. So, yeah, that's that's basically it. I, I would say, um, you know, I, I, I don't know if he'd be so heavily involved in this record as he was in High Water. I could say that. Probably not. But he'll always have his, you know, I always seek his input because you can never have too much talent around. I really believe that. And mm -hmm. he has talent. And I'd like to be surrounded by talent. So I'm always... If I can get any, if we can get help from any talented people, I'll take it, you know, because I, the the end of the day is, is it great or is it shitty? And I want it to be great. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for talent. So I'm always, you know, I'm always, you know, as uh, Joe Strummer said about Mick Jones, you know, who was always chronically late. Joe Strummer says, talent's worth waiting for. And that's mm -hmm. really true, you know. You, it's worth waiting for. So when yeah. Brian puts his bits in, I always love them. So when they come, I like them. I'll take them. Yeah. You know. Yep. So I want to ask you about you know the song "Till the Wheels Come Off" it was you know written by Charlie Starr, um, mm -hmm. and then they he ended up putting it on "Find a Light" to their last record. And you know he's I've read him in interviews saying he's a big fan of you guys. Um, how did that come about? You know when did you did you meet him? How long ago and whatnot? And how did that all happen? That was all through Brian, right? It was a Brian thing. He called. Yeah. He was a big. He was hip to them before I was. Mm -hmm. You know, because he's a, he's such a guitar guy, and he yep. picked up on Charlie being like a monster really early. And um, so he his uh, Brian's father uh, lived in Atlanta, and so one time Brian he, he'd been the fan, and I guess he just reached out to Charlie on Twitter. <laughs> said hi it's i don't usually do this it's brian from bad religion but i'd love to come and you know see your band i have a ticket already can i come and say hello and charlie uh dm'd it back saying you mean J brian from junkyard so, <laughs> yeah, and so he uh went to the show and they struck up a friendship and then um um i think i think you know either i don't know how who if brian said would you write one or charlie said i think i got one and I then, think that was it, yeah. Yeah, and then one day in my email, a demo from Charlie um, came in, and that was it. And yeah. <laughs> um, we changed a bit of the, you know, we we had to, we changed a couple of the, we had changed the arrangement a little bit, um, mm -hmm. not the arrangement, but we had, we changed a couple of the, you know, to fit David's voice for David. You know, it's got to have some places where he can. I always like when he has to stretch a little bit, and um, I, I had no idea if they were. I. I I didn't know if they. I didn't know they were going to use it for their. I had no idea. So when it came on their record, yeah. I'm like, oh, I guess they did it. I had no yeah. idea. So, but um, and we got to know Charlie when we went to England, and because they they were nice enough to have us open some shows for oh, them nice. there, yeah. and so we got a chance to actually become you know actual friends, and um, you know they're great. They're such a great band, and you oh, know, really nice guys. All yeah. very. I mean, we always the, yeah, they. Uh, it was nice I didn't of them to give us that they were all kind of. So we'd be we'd walk into soundcheck and they'd see us, and they'd start <laughs> playing like slipping away much better than we ever could. Like, <laughs> you know, like they play, I'm like, we don't even do that live because it's hard and they just nail <laughs> it, you know. And I'm like, wow, yeah, it is a pretty good song, you know what I mean? When you guys do it, <laughs> you guys should do the end of the night jam because I, I know one thing about Blackberry Smoke, they always like to have the artists to perform with come on and jam. So that would be amazing. I'd be I too intimidated to get on stage. No, come on, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> we so was, it was Paul. They're both amazing. Yeah, both they are. The, the four shows that we did with them in the UK, I mean, they were like, they were amazing. But the, man, the talk about everything being like it had to be shut down by midnight. 
I mean, this is really the places that we played are obviously nicer than the venues that we normally play. But um, so, yeah, there's all like, you know, loadout must be like, you know, 1 a.m. So it was like a big rush to they get love a curfew out of there. They love a curfew over there. Yeah. So uh, what nowadays, what does your touring look like? You know, what what uh, size rooms are you playing? Do you guys just go out on the weekends? And, and you, I know you're playing these M3 festivals and Rocklahoma and stuff like that. So what's your typical shows kind of look like? Any headline in small rooms? Are you open in for others? What's that all? How's that all work out? Lately, uh, I would say, well, obviously last year, right. I, last year we had big plans for um, – for the summer. And, uh, the plan was basically right after the beginning of the year, we did a four show, uh, run with Danko Jones. We did San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, San Diego and, uh, Orange County. And the plan after that was to go into the studio to cut this single that we're going to be releasing this year. But the plan was to have it released by, uh, July of last year. And then we were supposed to hit the road for two to three weeks doing a U.S. tour. But yeah, basically it's, um, Going 2019 backwards, uh, it's a lot of weekend fly-ins, like two to three shows. Um, and then based upon our work schedules, we've been we've stretched it out to basically two weeks whenever we can do a tour. And that's usually happens with us right around August. So that's but as far as 2020 and, you know, that was a shit year for everyone. Yeah, so. yeah <laughs> for sure. Hey, I have a real question real fast uh-huh. on that. Since you guys are kind of talking about where you're going with touring. Are you uh-huh. starting to really see the appetite coming back or has it been there for a while with these 80s bands and your brethren bands that you're coming out and playing with right now? Because when you talk about Rocklahoma M3, you're coming in. I know you guys. So I'm from Ohio. I'm from this. I grew up in the Cincinnati area. Uh, but I live in Columbus now. And like Bogarts. I know you guys play Bogarts. A couple right. of years. Are you starting to see an appetite come back for uh, that that music and or that decade of music? I think so. I think, well, I think once things open up again, you're going to have an appetite for anything at oh, this you're point. You're right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. But, but prior to that, uh, with the, it, we did, when we, when we got back together in 2000, between 2000 and 2010, it seemed like there was a lot of like those Rocklahomas and there was M3s and stuff. And we got approached for one of them between the, between 2000 and 2010. And we just kind of looked at it. It was like, I think we got offered like the crews. And we just we were like, well, we kind of a we don't have anything to promote because we always looked at it from that standpoint. We just didn't go out and tour because it was fun. Right. Uh, but uh, so so we kind of missed the that whole era of um, of hitting, you know, venues uh, and, and hitting uh, festivals. I so think, it, I think there's a demographic part here, too. I think our yeah. fan base, their kids got old enough that they had more disposable income that they weren't. Me on their kids. <laughs> their kids are through college now. Me too, actually. We have a lot of fans who will turn a junkyard three-day run into, like, let's take the wife and get a hotel and go to a couple of towns and see junkyard every night and yeah. have some fun. And maybe maybe a couple couples will do that. And so I think that's kind of it, too. I think there's more disposable income as you get older because you're not spending it raising children or you're not raising children. You can actually leave your house. You right. Know? Yeah. <laughs> I think that was, this, I think that's, if you look at the time frame about when it started to come up, it probably had to do with the fact that these people who are having kids in their early thirties. Those kids are now 20 and they're 50. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. We get that. That's, that's a completely good point. And, uh, it's and it also, you know, the same point bodes well for us because we're, yeah. you know, we're available because we, you know, we got we got day to day jobs and shit like that. But it's great to see 
from basically 2015, that was when we were like, we need to get, we need to hit the road. We need to, we got this faded single that we're basically promoting by ourselves, even though another label put it out, but you know, we, we got to do all the heavy, heavy lifting on this. So we finally said, we got to get a booking agent. I can't book the shows anymore. We got to hand it off to somebody else. But uh, it was interesting going from like eight shows a year to the next year, 32 shows. And then there was, I think it was 2018, we did maybe 50, 52 shows, which was unheard of for us. If you were to tell, ask me and Tim saying, you know, hey, you know, ask us in 20, in 2003, if we're going to be going on 50 shows a year, we'd be like, you're fucking nuts. Or (laughs) we're doing really well, making a lot of money. Right. Not, that's not the case, but but yeah, we, (laughs) <laughs> Both of it, but we do get, but we do get, it's, it's a blast having those people that will, you know, we'll do a three, three show run in like North and South Carolina and people fly out and basically not travel with us, but pretty much are there, you know, and at the same hotels as us. So it's kind of a kick, uh, you know, hanging out with them and, you know, I guess it's a, their own personal meet and greet in the lobby of the Marriott or whatever <laughs> at the bar. <laughs> So when you guys uh, got back together at some point, uh, I know you said Tim has always been there through all that, but, you know, then uh, uh, Chris Gates left. And then does that when you got asked to come in, like how what all happened there and how did that work out? No, okay. I, got, I got brought in when um, the first the, the reunion, Chris played guitar because Brian was still too busy with with um, Bad Religion. So. Oh. The first time I started really being actively involved was on the aborted third record where I was writing principally. I wrote a bunch of songs on that and co-wrote a bunch of songs with all the guys. And I was around all the time anyway. But mm-hmm. then I started to actually be involved. And there was some even discussion then of me having some kind of onstage involvement, I think. There was, road, there, was a road, there was discussion of a road presence of you actually coming out with us to do like a multi-purpose kind of guy because yeah, I think we were struggling. Her guitar and keyboards and, bat, we and were, vocals, I think, principally, too, because that was yeah, something people looked for. That and second then, album was heavy with the background vocals. And we yeah. were like, we need to replicate. Plus, we're going out with Leonard Skinner. So we kind of wanted to replicate the whole thing as well as we could, which, you know, financially it didn't work out. But Tim has been in and and around and heavily in and around from like 91, 92, okay. even going into 93. Yeah. So you're talking the six, sevens and nines album. That's where you're yeah. you skinnered on that. That would make sense. I mean, that sound would really, yeah. I think mesh with that group. It was yeah. always yeah. the idea. The band was trying to expand the live sound and it made sense to bring me in maybe as a live thing, but also besides the fact I was writing songs on what was going to be the next record and they'll just right. come with us and help us do it. It was, I mean, who knows? It was, it's, it was a long time ago, the haze of time. So Chris <laughs> yeah. and I were the two guitar. I, I replaced Brian, so I was with Brian's parts initially, and whatever. That's a heavy lift. And Chris did the first bunch of stuff with us. He did the first two or three tours of Spain and things like that. And I and the last we ended up at a festival in Italy, and he basically said, "I'm I'm out. I've had enough. I don't want to be on the road. I don't." He just didn't yeah. want to do it. I don't think he felt great and physically. You know, he wasn't up. He just didn't want to do it. He wasn't enjoying yeah. it. So we didn't play for a while. You know, it wasn't really until Brian came around and says, well, I'll do some shows. And that kind of yeah. said, oh. So then I went over and did Chris's parts, and he took his old part back. And so that's how it kind of happened. It was pretty, it was pretty natural. You know, Chris, Chris stopped and didn't want to do it. And we kind of said, okay, well, now what? And we didn't really. 
But it wasn't like there was tons of pressing business. This was before right. we even had decided to do Fade or anything. So, yeah. you know, it was really a, a, a function of Brian and uh, hanging around with me and then saying, hey, it'd be fun to do some Junkyard stuff. I'm like, well, we could just do me and you. I'm like, oh, let's do that. And that's right. really kind of how, as usual with us, it just kind of happens in a pretty natural way. Yeah. And, you know, Chris is seems very happy to be off the road and i don't blame yeah. him for that sometimes too. I, I you know three in the morning in the motel six in the middle uh, of the can be kind of a drag i mean there's no doubt about it you know yeah. the shows are great but every, you know the travel part is tough and as you get older it gets tougher yeah so i i could i could see where he's coming from too so it's all good yeah, yeah. and that's how it kind of happened so i've kind of i've been in with brian and i've been in with chris mm-hmm. you know if that makes any sense. And we even did a handful of shows with the three of oh. us, as I recall. Remember that? Oh, no yes. kidding. Yeah. yeah we, we did, did, uh, we, did two, we did two shows. We did uh, we did Tulsa at Kane's Ballroom. And yeah. somewhere there's a – I got a DVD or somewhere. I got to pull it up. Uh, the video quality isn't great, but the audio is cool. So we did, uh, we did Kane's Ballroom, and then we flew down and did uh, an Austin show on yeah. a weekend. The three, uh, as the three a, of us. Yeah. Yeah. Sounded pretty big, I gotta say. Yeah. It was, yeah. You, that, you got it there, man. It was yeah, super fine. Did you have like three guitars going, or, or like Tim, were you switching off and playing keys? I mean, no, what, what, no. hell no. Three guitars. <laughs> three, nice. Three old, two less Pauls and whatever weird thing Chris plays. You know, <laughs> it was a hoot. I sat, Absolutely. I looked back. I mean, it was. I let those guys do all the bits they did. So yeah. But when so the solos came it, on, it sounded so fast. You know? well, Pat, how did you keep up with these yeah. guys on the drum on the kit, man? When you got three guitars going, did you have to hit harder or what? Mike, differently? No, I, I, loud. That means I got to drink more. Well. <laughs> <laughs> He's plenty loud. Don't worry. He's plenty loud. In 2019, you guys put out the old habits die hard. Now, was that a batch of songs that, that was going to come out after six and sixes, sevens, and nines? Was that going to be the next record at that point? Exactly. Those were. Uh, those were all demo. Basically, long story short, uh, we after when we started doing the third record, they, you know, we went in and did. I want to say probably thirty to thirty-five songs uh, sp- uh, sporadically through about a year, um, and uh, a lot of those songs weren't great, but they were released um, in the mid two thousands, released on eBay, and uh, I think it was Chris that was selling them initially, but then, as you know, all you got to do is burn it and put new artwork on it, so all of a sudden, they've got, you know, it was on eBay, started out 25 bucks, and people were selling it for like 100 so at that point, uh, you know, we a lot of people kept on asking, oh, please put it out, please put it out, and it was demos for us. I mean, it was never meant for public consumption. It was just meant for us, so finally, we just said, we need to put a pin in this so we could just Get it, get it out there. So we picked the best eleven, along with the record label, and and finally basically said, here is the third Geffen release that never came out, and it's you know available on vinyl and CD. Here you go, it's done. We can now put it behind us. And it was, I mean, these are twenty-four track demos. So that, yes. that's what budget for like this was record, these recorded at standards that aren't even people don't even get two-inch twenty-four track demos for a, yeah. for a, you know mm. all these songs pretend to be re-recorded but and that's where i came in i was right i that's where i started really actively writing with the band and i was probably in the studio almost every day with them yeah just because yeah. we were hanging out you know too there was a lot yeah. of hanging out what else do we have to fucking do <laughs> and then also yeah those demos back then cost uh if you if you basically you know put in all the budgets for the demos 
that third record, they probably spent over a hundred thousand dollars just on demos, stuff that was never going to see the album. So it's a, you know, that's why it's, it's pretty good quality stuff. You know, we went back and we remastered it, but we, unfortunately we don't have the, uh, the master tapes. Yeah. It'd be nice to have those, but at the end of it, it's, uh, it came out and, you know, I think we do, we, we did choose a couple songs to play live from it. So once we get back out there again, we'll do it again, play those again. Yeah. And, and that album. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. There's good songs on there. I mean, there, was, there are good ones. I think like 20 plus in contention and we kind of send it to everybody in the band. So, okay, pick your 11. And we basically all pick the same 11 with a couple variances. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, that album, it's a good album. and It's super consistent with the sound and styling of really the second album like those go pretty really much well yeah. together yeah. yeah those are those sense. are my two favorite albums of your your guys actually those, those two albums oh, thanks yeah that's a it's a good it would have been a great third record you know it yeah. would have been it would have been really interesting i mean the, at the tail end right before you know we were actually meeting with producers when we were doing these demos and uh, one of the producers on the demo um uh is uh oh god i'm spacing on his name uh uh, Rob, Rob, Rob and Tom. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a demo d- produced by, you know, a big time producer right now who did what Beck and um, who oh, else did uh, Rob do? The, the Vines. He did. Uh, the, yeah. Um, I mean, okay. all, the new X album. I mean, he does all kinds. He did the Bronx. He did. Mm-hmm. You know, and he became a, yeah. And he, he basically discovered Beck not long after that. He put out okay. the, oh, like, yeah. his own imprint. And I, that was him. But he was a buddy of mine from D.C. We used to play in bands together in D.C. So once a, there's a lot of D.C. stuff, too. Yeah. Ryan and I, and we'd circle back on that a lot, you know. And punk and all. It's all the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 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 So they, they, they weren't step, haphazard demos, you know. Sorry. Yeah. So let's step into the Wayback Machine and take it back to where, you know, uh, you made basically at the point where you have that lineup that was on the first record and starting to write that batch of songs. Like what, what, what year is that? And in a specific, I really want to know specifically in Los Angeles at that time, you know, you guys are like the antithesis to, to how a lot of those, the look of a lot of that band. And I don't know if I have this correctly. You guys were more in East Hollywood and then, so what? What year does that? When you get that that lineup and start working on those songs, like what is that scene like for you guys? You know, and then what's you know just started with that writing those those songs and uh, trying you know trying you're in that scene but not really in that scene. We got lumped in with that. Are you talking about the first record? The second? The first record? The... Yeah. The, oh, well, okay. The... Gotcha. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, we that scene that scene started off. I mean, we're talking what '86, Tim? Originally, that the yeah, whole that, rock scene. Yeah, it's so really kind of coalesced in '86, '87, '87. Yeah, yeah, which was basically the death of the hardcore punk scene, or even the punk scene. You know, I mean, it, at that point, anybody who's any musician in LA that's been you know through the ringer, they basically said, "All right, b- between '85 and '86, let's go check out the rock and roll scene that's going on in, like, say, West Hollywood." The only reason why we bring up East Hollywood so much is because that's where we lived and it was way cheaper than West Hollywood. <laughs> and uh, yeah, granted, you know, your next door neighbor was dealing drugs out of his little out of his front door and your car would get ripped off every, you know, every other month. But then you just replace it with another five hundred dollar car. So it was more like because that's all we could afford. 
And uh, also the West Hollywood scene, it was more, uh, it, it was kind of a, for us, coming from the punk scene, we just looked at it, it was like, that's not our crowd, that's not our people, you know? So we just stayed in our little, you know, shitty part of East Hollywood, which was also, you know, that's where Jane's Addiction started off, the Hangman. So many people were living in that area, but uh, so on that, the same street, half of the scene lived yeah. on one street for about a mile down this huh. one street in East Hollywood. I mean, and I know Jane's lived further down, but St. Andrews was yeah. right off there. That yeah. they came out in the song, and so, but all the junkyard guys, all the guys, all the bands, they lived in these little shitty cottage cheese apartments up and down in you know between Hollywood and Sunset and Franklin on the street, Wilton, and yeah. Very small. It was very small, but we definitely... Very small scene, yeah. And we used to say, like, we don't really go west that much, you know what I mean? Like, we don't get, we don't take our passports out that often, you know? Yeah, so we, we can't we afford very, cars. <laughs> it was very small, you know? And some of the clubs were not even advertised clubs. They were just literally underground clubs that you had to know to go. On Tuesday, it's this, on this place. No sign or anything. There was a lot of that, so... When people talk about the history of the club scene, everything talk about you know the rock scene. It's like, you know, we never played those places till we were headliners. We didn't because right. we weren't going to pay to play. Well, right. we didn't have any money to pay to play. Yeah, and we didn't have any fans, you know, to buy the fucking tickets. <laughs> Our only so fans at that point we were all, people. We all kind of team together and put together these bills. Junkyard got big pretty quickly. I was in a yep. band for the Junkyard almost immediately, yeah. and then. Guns N' Roses brought Junkyard as an opening act, and that was kind of how it would happen. You'd open for Pussycat or Ellie. The bands that kind of got out front first got bigger, and then they'd bring the bands up with them, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, so, I got to go in for the Hangman. That was a big deal because they were bigger, and you just kind of would – all the boats would start to rise with that, you know? Yep, yep. So you said the magic word, Guns N' Roses, so I kind of have two questions. One, our friend David passed this on to us, who runs the State of America podcast in the Black Hole. How okay. did you – how did um, your lead singer end up, or how did Guns N' Roses end up sporting a junkyard T-shirt in a lot of photos I've seen? Uh, it was basically uh, what happened was there's a there's a record label called Cleopatra Records, and the owner of Cleopatra, uh, Brian Pereira, years ago used to have a silk screening, uh, like a little warehouse for silk screening. So he would go out and sell shirts like. When like, uh, what was that band? The Cherry Bombs came into town, which was like Andy McCoy's other band. So he would be the, the swag guy that they would have make all his shirts. So uh, we had an idea. We we're like, why don't we make junkyard shirts instead of instead of making flyers, we'll give out shirts. Mm -hmm. So uh, we printed up a uh, hundred or so shirts. And as we were printing them, you know, it's supposed to just be junkyard across once. And we were like, oh, we got to add more, you know. So we just added a couple more. So we, you know, in essence, we didn't bite the cheap trick idea. We just stacked it because it was like, well, it needs to, it needs two more because otherwise it looks weird. So we basically played a show and uh, Axel came down. And I want to say that uh, Izzy was there with him or whatever. And it was at this cave uh, called English Acid. And Tim's band uh, at that point was the opener for us. Uh, nice. So we were giving away shirts left and right. Yeah, I got and, one. Why Trash yeah. a Go-Go was called. Why Trash a Go-Go. Yeah, it was very fucking cool venue. Uh, part of Osco's Disco in the yeah. 70s. So. A shithole. Like, yeah. Just Big shit. hell. Like, they had these really long steep steps <laughs> into the basement. And these guys in <laughs> fucking high heels trying to drag their Marshall cabs down there. It was quite. <laughs> and just falling down. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all doing it too, just like yeah. Eventually, it was like, can we all just share one cab? You know. Yeah, right. 
And of course, everybody's like, no, no, I have to have a full stack. I think Axel sat in with you guys too, right? I think he did. Uh, I think at that point we did either Mississippi Queen or uh, oh, we, no did, we did a Rose Tattoo cover, I think one of the boys or something. But so that's how Axel basically he got the shirt for because he was there. Oh, nice. Yeah, with everybody else. And um, so a lot of the pictures that you see of him wearing mm-hmm. our shirt are taken from when we actually opened up for them at uh, Perkins Palace. So that would have been. Uh, uh so that was 88 it was like december of 88 they played a string of shows in la i think it was like five shows in a row that were sold out and at that point we were basically we had we had uh told geffen that we were you know we were going to sign with him and everything but we haven't we had not physically signed the contract yet so i guess axel wore the shirt to like tell us it's okay to sign with geffen or whatever oh cool (laughs) but at that point, it was just like, yeah, it's like, oh, the opening act's playing. I got their shirt. I'm going to put it on. Yeah, so. remember, there was so much ink to be filled back then. There were so many magazines. They couldn't get it. And they were the yeah. biggest band in the world. There wasn't enough content. So yeah. they, this, this run, for some reason, they let, this is before that he got big enough where he could ban photographers from the pits and things like that. Like, they had right. just started to really happen. So all these photographers were there. So it was just a a lot of luck that yeah. the main live shots of the band, and I think he did one post session, which was probably shot that same day, one, yeah. you know. It was, back to just day, happened yeah. to be the shots that Metal Edge and Rip and blah, 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 and all these magazines, that was the Guns N' Roses shots you could get, the li- the cool live shots without just running the same old thing from the back of Appetite. So there was right. a, always a bit of, like, kismet involved in that, too, and he happened to be wearing that shirt that night, you know. Yeah. Very soon, he was big enough to not let a photographer there for more than two seconds. You know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? Exactly. And he did. So there's luck, and you know, and all these things. There's always a bit of luck too. You know. Yeah, That's the best time. advertising you guys could have possibly had. It is funny because we, uh, you know, we would see it back then. Obviously, you know, communication information was a bit slow. You know, even getting a fax back then took, I think, like three days. But uh, it was just like we would see magazines. It's like, oh, cool, he wore the shirt, and then like. You know, two months later, oh, cool, he wore the shirt again. Uh, no, same photo. Set. Oh, same photo of like same show. Like, all right, but uh, I, I made my mom buy a lot of Hit Parader and Circus magazines at the grocery store, so I certainly yeah. saw that, and I, I, de- I definitely had a couple junkyard pictures hanging up in my room at one point too. Yeah, so, but that's how small the that's how small that East to go back to these Hollywood thing was. They were they were one of the only bands that straddled both, though they yeah. kind of really moved away from the strip stuff very quickly. They did play Gazaris, but you know, that's not where they really made their way. You would play, they'd play scream club and like these mm-hmm. underground clubs. And that was really where Jane's came up and where Junkie mm-hmm. came up and a bunch of other bands that didn't get as big, but it was also this intermingling of these. You would see a bill that would be X Jane's addiction and jet boy at this place scream. So it was this combination of bands There'd be a goth band. You'd see Specimen yeah. with, you know, L.A. Guns. Like, that was not weird. Like, this was, there was a weird cross-pollinization between the X-Punks, the kind of gothy, you know, thing, mm-hmm. and the and this rising hard rock thing, you know? And it all kind of, co- Guns N' Roses pulled on a lot of those elements. You know, the punk with Duff and the kind of the rock thing, and then mm-hmm. also that valley rock thing that Steven Adler brought. That was mm-hmm. there, too, you know? And so there was, they, they kind of touched on a lot. And then Izzy had that kind of gothy. There was always some kind of elements that they kind of they picked up on a lot of it too. They were the yeah. pretty good distillation of all the elements that were going in there, you know. And whether it was Tex and the Horseheads and the leanings that Texacala had towards being a goth girl, that stuff was yeah. 
still very big. Yeah. You know, half the kids look like they were in The Cure, and the other half looked like they were in, you know, Johnny Thunders. You know, there was yeah, a lot right. of mixture, <laughs> you know. And I think people make it, it's it's hard to explain, and I feel like we're trying to put a genie back in the bottle, and it's kind of pointless. Like, we got mixed, you get mixed in with that. You get mixed in with whatever you mix in with it. I mean, like I always yeah. say, I'm sure Nirvana doesn't want to be called a fucking grunge band. I mean, right, fucking, right. whatever, it is right, what it right. is. Yeah. The only yeah. band that ever transcended anything is the fucking Beatles, you know, and they're just the Beatles. And right, everything yeah. else has been categorized, and that's just the way it goes. So, yeah. but. You know, like when you asked me, how did he get a shirt? It was in the most natural way, and that's how the scene came up. It was natural. Yeah. You want to play with your friends so you can share cabinets sometimes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's really that simple. <laughs> I mean, there was no grand plan. Yeah. So I got a, a you know, follow-up question with the the East Hollywood scene. And you had mentioned, you had mentioned James Addiction, and you mentioned, like, Franklin Avenue, um, yeah. I had seen a, in a documentary with Bob Forrest, who was like in Thelonious Monster then, yeah. and he mentioned there was like this one section of like Franklin Gower, uh, mm-hmm. I think he said Ful- or Fulton or something like Fulton. that. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, so that's where you guys were more in with with Jane's and and Chili Peppers, Fishbone, Thelonious yeah. Monster. Yeah. Rod- those are Raji's bands. I mean, we play yeah. Raji's all the time. Raji's had a certain kind of vibe. They tended a little even more towards that, you know, the, um, you know, the Thelonious Monster was like the house band of Rogers, you know. They and were, yeah, yeah. And they all worked there. Yeah, Bob was, was like the But they cook. also played Scream and all these other places, too. So, yeah, it was, you'd see those guys all the time, you know, at the local dive bars. That's just, you know, and Jumbos or the Frolic Room. And there, there was, you know, they were still old man bars back then. They were, you know, yeah. and you could drink, get your first drink at six in the morning. You know, it was still very much that kind of CD Hollywood world. Rogers on Hollywood Boulevard, which is now pretty nice, at the time was super sketchy, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. But you felt like, I always say it was like chitty, chitty, bang, bang in reverse. It's like there were no cops around. It seemed <laughs> like, let these crazy kids have this fucking weird shit over here in Hollywood. We're not going to bother them. It's like, they look <laughs> weird, whatever. Let like, them do you know, what they want. Why do they need beater cars? Like, what are we going to, are we going to wrestle? They don't have any fucking money. They cannot, you know right. what I mean? So, but... <laughs> Like in the screen, like in that great fear song, the Wilcox Hotel, there was a, you know, the club on Ray was right next to the Wilcox Hotel, which is the yeah. police station on Wilcox in Hollywood there. Which <laughs> if you got a Dewey or your girlfriend got in a fight or someone, that's where you where, end up there. Some guy pop, where is he? Oh, he's at the Wilcox Hotel. That was the fucking like, police station that yeah. fear sings about in that song. I, I spent the night in jail at the Wilcox Hotel. So it was like, that's where everyone was. And all those clubs were, you know, you could They're all scattered watch. around it. But they were all in that East Hollywood thing, you know, and yeah. um, it's the same bands will play a lot of the same places. And uh, so, yeah, Plus, like, you, like you mentioned earlier with East Hollywood and West Hollywood, basically East Hollywood had more opportunities for bands to play shows. West Hollywood had more opportunities for promoters and club owners to charge those bands to play shows. Yeah. So it's just like, you know, everybody goes in West Hollywood. You had to sell these tickets. In fact, I was even in a band that uh, uh, signed an agreement where we would sell 125 tickets in advance to play the reopening of the whiskey. Well, once once a show night came around, I just handed them the 125 tickets and the contract said I didn't sell anything. And they're like, well, you were supposed to sell it. And I got taken to a small claims court in oh. Beverly Hills, which I just laughed at. I'm like, OK, fine. I can pay a dollar a month for, you know, 125 months. And the guy, <laughs> the judge just looked at me and said, Sounds good to me. Done. <laughs> so and, that's, you know, that's the, the explanation was, of it. You could sound like you wanted to, 
Yes. And the East Side. If you played the strip, you had to sound like they wanted bands to sound. And right. I didn't want to sound like that. Well, like you Poison know, I, and Rat. I mean, what were we talking about? Yeah, what was ever the thing at that yeah. moment. Gotcha. Yeah. The, the freedom of these, if you were good, it was uh, that was it. Right. Was your band any good? It didn't matter mm -hmm. if you didn't do it exactly the way the band that they think you're supposed to be popular yeah. now do. No one cared about that. Yeah. Was it good? People like Dale Gloria, who was a great tastemaker, she mm -hmm. just liked bands. Yeah. You know, if James Addiction had to come up on the West Hollywood scene, they never would have come up. Right. No. But they were weird, you know, but they were great. Junkyard yeah. was weird. I mean, mm -hmm. like, you know, there were guys Junkyard with tattoos. That was really weird back then, you know? Yeah. So it wasn't, that was the other thing too. It was so restrictive and so closed that mm -hmm. we were just like, that that was totally against our punk aesthetic. Like, oh, I don't want to have to do what they're telling us. That's yeah. What's the point of that? That was yeah. part of it too. Like we didn't fit in, and they weren't good. And if you didn't fit in, you weren't going to be successful in their world anyway. Right. So uh, also in that documentary, uh, Bob mentioned Top Jimmy. Did you guys know yeah. Top Jimmy? I've known. I uh, he used to Top Jimmy used to be the first time I met him. Uh, he his band was playing upstairs at the Cathedral Grand, and my punk band was playing downstairs. And I want to say that was like 1983 or something. And I just remember like downstairs, you know, full blown hardcore punk rock show. And I was like, I, in between bands, I was upstairs watching Top Jimmy because it was just like, what the fuck is this? This is fucking great. You know, this is the total polar opposites of what's going on downstairs. But uh, and, and I think uh, I want to say that Top Jimmy hung around with Roach and Gates a bit. Yeah. Roach and him were had were tight, I think. Yeah. And Gates for sure. I mean, he was a legend. He was a local legend. He yeah. was a big guy, but he was usually holding up the end of the bar when I'd see him. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I ever saw him play, but I saw him plenty. You know that yeah. bar, Raji's was a. Oh it, man. It was a real cast of character because the beer was like the drinks were free, and then yeah. probably like Top Jimmy, they actually were free. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it was a kind of place where it's like they'd fill up a trash can with ice and throw fucking Miller lights in there or whatever, paps, and they charge a buck and a quarter. They, you know, and it wasn't even it wasn't that. even oh, that good. Poor, you know, it was it, it wasn't even that good back then. It was like Meister Brow or yeah. something. Oh my god! <laughs> whatever the guy does, <laughs> you drink it like the, the, the just fell off. Strohs, you know, yeah. old style, yeah. old style. Oh my god! Everyone was old so. Style. We were all so poor. I mean, we were broke. Yeah. We had no money. That's why you drink shitty beer, though. I mean, when you, yeah. don't, you don't care, right? Yeah. 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 You know, we had no that's money. Where, that's where you go shopping at the uh, the store. They had a store in Hollywood that was uh, an earthquake damage store. So you could go in <laughs> and buy like you could buy a case of Top Ramen because it was damaged, and it, and a case of Top Ramen was I don't know a buck, and yeah. then you buy. They had a uh, they had uh, earthquake damaged uh, whiskey that was like you know rebel yell whiskey it was like terrible whiskey or whatever that basically just happened you know it just got a scratch in it or whatever it's like oh fuck well I'll take it yeah was like, I remember Stephen oh, Adler did some little bit where he says how to live on a dollar a day because he was like us two living in Hollywood and he showed you how to like turn like mac and cheese and this into like a casserole for all a dollar because you'd live on basically a meal a day and right. you would find a way to go and get like those you know. Uh, five mac and cheese for a dollar you know and if you really think special you throw a can of tuna in there she so had some protein and that yes. kind of and he had a like he's like his cooking show he's i'm gonna do a cooking show where i show you how to eat live on a dollar a day and he would <laughs> make these little like total like east 
like rock guy starving. Food. Food. You know, not you even know, rock guy. I'm like, yeah, oh, just, I'm going to do that one. That's young good. guy, young, poor guy. When I was in college, so Tim, this is funny. Mac yeah. and cheese, a can of tuna, and a can of peas. A great meal that lasts a lot of days. And you were that like, yeah. like, like, I'm going to go big and buy the extra, spend the extra dollar and get a can of tuna for this thing. The cheap ass tuna. I mean, yeah. you know, I'm not sure even the dolphin free kind. It's like you know, full on dolphin. Plain wrap. Bumblebee. What is that? No. So one thing that we wanted to ask you about, and with Jason and I being like huge fans of the Black Crows, uh-huh. you guys took them out on their first tour. And if you can elaborate about that or anything you remember, and what do you think they learned from you? Was there camaraderie, any good stories? What can you say oh, about that? Those guys, uh, it was it was really weird because at that point we were, um, it was 1990, and uh, we had basically just got off the road. We were all happy. You know, our dicks are big. We did a great tour. Uh, last we had heard our, you know, the first uh, album was at, you know, a quarter million sold or something. So, we, you know, the next logical step is, okay, start writing for the second record. So while we were writing for the second record, um, uh, we got uh, we got a phone call that, uh, you know, our, our label wanted us to take a band out on the road and basically just like show them the ropes kind of thing. And, uh, and the kicker to that was you guys are going to be gone for probably two to three months. So we said, yes, indeed, please sign us up because the whole writing thing while we were doing that was not really going great. So we're like, fuck yeah, let's yeah, we'll go on the road with whoever. And uh, so we went in the label and we chatted with them about stuff. And uh, and they basically said that uh, it was either Rick Rubin or uh, it was somebody somebody that's part of Rick Rubin's people contacted our A and R guy and said to have Junkyard take these guys out, have them like teach them what's going on. Part of the deal is. Uh, they aren't going to be on a bus. You know, they're going to be traveling in their mom's van. They're going to be following you, but uh, we're going to share a road cruise. And at that point, I'm like, I, I'm like, when do we leave? I don't care who this band is. I just want to get the hell out of town. And uh, they said, well, they're playing Cat House tomorrow night. Go check them out. And I'm like, what's the name of the band? It's like Black Crows. So my initial thought, and I think I was even in the same room with Baker. We were just like, wow, it sounds like a, like a death metal band. You know, we're like, death, it's like Black Crows. It's gnarly. So we, I think Tim was there as well. And uh, so we went and saw him on a Tuesday night at Cat House and we walked in and it was like, wait a second, this ain't no death metal band. This is, this band's amazing. And uh, we chatted a bit with them af- uh, after the show and kind of introduced ourselves. And uh, the next time we saw him, I think was the, at the first show, I want to say like Orange County or something like that, where we kicked off the tour. But uh, it was just, it was great they were really nice guys they were just they were hungry they were green totally naive about everything um and uh but there was something about them as we all watched them even baker was just like after the first show that we did afterwards just like god damn these guys are really fucking good and uh so that's kind of how the tour went there of course is stories here and there but um it was great to see them go from opening up to us by the middle of the tour, they found out they got the Aerosmith tour by the end of the tour, their sales were through the roof. You know, our shows were doing well because people were coming to see them, but uh, it was, it was really, really cool. And all the guys were just really down to earth and really nice guys. And whenever actually for me, whenever I run into them now, that's still, you know, very, they're always nice to, you know, have a chat with or anything. There's never like, Hey, fuck you. I'm, you know, Chris Robinson or anything. 
Any anecdotes? Anything for us? <laughs> well, oh no, I was going to, so that's the basic history. So all the other stuff, oh geez, uh, they unfortunately learned how certain things are done with deli trays, like in a certain place in, in Texas, how you would basically have an after show party in your tour bus. And they, uh, so we taught them like, you know, the do's and don'ts of certain things that you do with a deli, deli tray when certain uh, guests are on the bus and inside the back lounge. So there was a lot of that that happened where they would just sit the next day and we would play, we would play Monday morning quarterback the next day and talk about what happened the night before. At that point, I think uh, we had video of it and the guitar player, Jeff looked at it and had to use our lounge to go throw up in the back because he was so <laughs> disgusted by what he saw. <laughs> and that was just the first night in Texas. But oh. uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they uh, and then eventually I think they rolled their van. They uh, they were driving. They had a um, uh, so, yeah, like I said, uh, Rick Rubin was adamant. Do not. He didn't even want these guys to have a rental van. It's like, no, they got to learn. So they went out in their mom's van and uh, they I think two or three weeks into the into the tour. Somebody, their manager or somebody was driving and he rolled the van. So the next day, Rick Rubin wasn't feeling bad for him or anything like that. They just basically said, okay, now you guys have upgraded to a rental van. We're not even going to throw you in a bus. He didn't even care if they were okay. It's like, okay, you get, get back on the road. No, screw you. <laughs> so it was uh, interesting. Do you witness any brawls between Chris and Rich? No. No, <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Honestly, to tell you the truth, we didn't even witness any arguments. I mean, there wow. was nothing. And David, uh, we would take, um, I went out because uh, we were, you know, being in a bus and we're traveling together. I'm like, hey, I want to go hang out with them. So let's trade spots. So I traded with, uh, I traded with Steve because his knee was bothering. I'm like, dude, let me go hop in the van with you guys. When I hopped in the van with them, it was no different than on the bus with us, except, you know, close quarters. It was there was no argument or any drama between those guys at all, at least that we saw. Maybe it was in their hotel room. But uh, I think, if anything, we had more drama than they did because we shared a road crew and we had an aggro road crew that would sh like if you asked uh, our guitar tech a question, he would flip an ashtray at you. You know, he was just so pissed. <laughs> not only did he have to handle us, he had to handle the opening act. And it and he was and I think he only got paid a couple bucks extra to do it. So for him, it was like, oh fuck, the, you know, I gotta, you know, oh, do double Oh god, oh, yeah. You know, Rich has eight million guitars. Hopefully, that was before he got a hundred guitars. Yeah, I think he had like two. Yeah, they had uh, they had they had more than us, but they had yeah they had two guitars. Yeah, they had a total of four guitars where we had three. I don't know. Yeah. Was, yeah, I know that Chris used to sit in and do like Sin City with you with Yard too, right? Oh, nice. Yeah, footage uh, yeah. of that anywhere, but yeah, I think Chris and David became. I, th I think Chris. I think David was a real good first. I think Chris learned a lot from David. You know, they about, were all gone. Yeah. So and I think they got they got pretty tight during that period. Yeah. And so I don't know if there's footage of, of him sitting with the band, with the art or not, but it, it happened a lot. Yeah. Right. Uh, I think that was a good smart move though to have those guys team up with you because one, you've got a similar vein of rock music where you're you're doing a lot of different influences. You're not trying you know you're not trying to be pigeonholed into the hair metal scene or what's become the grunge scene. And um, I forgot my second point. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um and you guys and here it is you guys were a little bit of an anomaly with what popular music really was at that point too right again with the hair metal or the you know the the metal scene so you guys were probably like you know out by yourselves 
doing doing that type of music we were we we like you know you get bands uh you know for bands from the era or whatever a lot of bands like you know there's love hate even little caesar and stuff like that where they had opened up for acdc and whatnot the only band that we ever opened up for was skinner and like on an arena level for the most part we were just left to go headline the clubs on our own uh and the the sizes the side venue, size venues we were doing were between i don't know we never exceeded like a 500 seater so we would always be doing the 200 to 500 but a guaranteed sellout for these guys but for some reason whenever we got on the list uh, on the short list of like major tours it was just nope and uh that's you know i'm sure that has a lot to do with management and that's one of the reasons why we signed with the manager, our manager to begin with, our original manager, because he had ACDC. And we figured we signed with him, we get on the road with ACDC. Well, once we signed with him and everything and had the final meeting, he told us we don't like to mix our bands. And at that point, our hearts just went, well, there goes ACDC. We're fucked. We're never going to like, well, why did we sign with you then? <laughs> but uh, we were pretty much on our own. So for the Crows to jump on board and see how you know, this is the way, of, and this kind of, you know, ties in with the, with our album that's coming out called Lifer. I mean, these guys got to see us. We were pretty much lifers back then, club, li- club band lifers. And uh, we would pretty, even though we had a road crew, we were doing a lot of the shit ourselves, much the same way with, that we learned in punk rock bands that we were in prior to that. So I guess they learned, you know, this is how it's done, you know, for the 200 to 500 seaters. And this is how, you know, this is how you actually, you know, hang out with your audience and shit. You don't like hang out and hide backstage because that's yeah. one thing that we're not we're not one of those bands. We hate we hate being in a backstage room because it's like we see each other all the time. We just want to leave the room and go hang out with other people. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, we're winding down here, but you just uh, uh Mention something that goes to the next question. You, you you have you're working on this next record? Yes. Uh, well, actually, the next record, the next single is done. Uh, all we're doing right now is the uh, you know gathering up the artwork and uh, trying to figure out a release date for it. Is that just for the single or? Yeah, you want to take this one, Tim? Yeah, the plan is to put the we we've had the single in the can as they say for a little bit. Mm-hmm. And have been planning and doing it sort of like how we did High Water, where Faded was a standalone and then a follow up. Seemed to work well, and it also gave us a chance to like finish the writing while the other while the single's doing its business. So the plan is to have the single come out. You know, I hopefully the beginning of this you know this quarter. We want to be able mm-hmm. to go and support it, so we're kind of not you know rushing out because it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do that anytime soon. So. And then the writing process, like like in High Water, had begun even with the single. It's just this; these songs kind of popped out, and we and we they were they're part of a larger batch, and so we've done more to refine that batch and get it closer. And I think once once this first domino falls, where Lifer comes out, the song single's called Lifer. Um, that starts to get us kind of moving into the to like okay, let's finish up the rest of the songs for the record and go in and cut the record. Mm-hmm. Um, the writing process is what takes us a long time. The recording process for us is usually pretty quick yeah. uh, overall. So yeah. um, the plan is to have another, you know, it's been long enough since high water. It's time for a follow-up. Now, this is me saying, like, I I, I never thought we'd have to do a, a follow-up to our follow-up, but I guess we do, you know, because we, we right. thought, <laughs> it was part of me, like, well, high water will be the last ones. So we better make it great or whatever. Yeah. It's got to hold up next to those other two. And, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm like, oh, shit, it's got to fucking – 
hold up the high water. So, you know, <laughs> I guess it's, I call those quality problems, you know? It's, yeah, yeah, right. For sure. Good problems but, to have. But the writing is continuing on that record, and hopefully in 21 it will come out. Yeah. And plan to all things, you know, whatever. According to Dr. Fauci, we might be able to be back out there at the, towards the end of this year and then aggressively in 22. Yeah, you know, I'll really look forward to that because I'm I'm a I'm a big fan. I'm gonna Brian. I'm gonna apologize here. I'm not fanboy out here just a little bit. So <laughs> I'm I'm a big fan of you guys. So 1992, the the biggest three bands I was constantly playing were you guys, the Black Crows. Um, you know, were two of the three, and then it started coming Pearl Jam and in, into the mix a little bit too. I was never much of a grunge guy, but I like Pearl Jam. But you guys were like I like them. The, yeah. The soundtrack of my junior and senior year of high school. Wow, that's Black cool. Rose. So now I'm going to throw something in for one of my friends, another fanboy. Uh, my friend cool. Jonathan, who's been my friend since high school, is another metal guy. He says he loves Hollywood. Make sure you tell those guys. I love that song Hollywood so much, and those guys are awesome. So, Jonathan, that was for you. Oh, hey. Thanks, Jonathan. I appreciate that. You come see us. I guarantee you we'll play it. Yeah, so right. <laughs> might have to wait. You might have to wait to the end, though. <laughs> yeah. well, well, we live in the Columbus, Ohio area, so you guys come around here um, anytime soon. I'm going to grab yeah. his, his his dumb ass. We're going to come out and see you. We will Great. be in that area, hopefully in 2022. We'll hold you to that. We'll please, hold you to that. please. Yep. How about all the time in the world? <laughs> I we do it like every now and again. It's rare, yeah. though. We don't do it yeah. that much, but we do it every now and again. Yeah. Cool. You got to get David in the right frame of mind, meaning he doesn't <laughs> he doesn't see it on the set list. Yeah. No, yeah, he doesn't like that one. <laughs> we, as he says, it gives him like, uh, what is it? Uh, he, he has yeah. like trauma from it. It was just that that was he thought he started to sell his soul. It's just all in his mind, as most things are. But that that video, he, song. he was he had he made a deal with the devil by doing that song, which I consider a perfectly good rock and roll song. But you know. Like I said, if David can't commit to singing it, it doesn't really work for us that often. So we do it every now and again because I actually enjoy playing it because it's a little different, you know. But I, I think, I'm just I the think, guitar uh, player, fellas. I, you know, <laughs> we serve at the pleasure of David Roach. You know, <laughs> I think the the was, yeah. I think the issue that we have with uh, all the time in the world. I think it's probably. I think me, David, and uh, Todd have. Uh, we got PTSD from that song, and it's not the song. <laughs> it's not the song itself. No, it's the uh, video. That went along with that because the song is I, I like the song a lot. I mean, I think uh, the original version compared to when Ed Stasium came in and snipped and tied it, he did, Ed did a great job. But that video is just that's where David goes. I sold my soul to the devil. At that point, Geffen was like, we need to clean you guys up. And we're like, why? Why? And it's at that point, I knew, you know, what, what we jumped the shark at that point when I was getting fitted for suede pants. For the video and i fucking played drums and <laughs> i wasn't even i wasn't even my my wardrobe budget at that point when they were done with the pants i hadn't even covered 10 percent of my budget i still had 90 percent more which was like another five grand to spend and i'm like i uh i'm like i, I got nothing every every 80s band's entitled to at least one really shitty video yeah, yeah. and that was it they all have don't be embarrassed you're allowed to have yeah. one really shitty video there's way worse out there and i've seen them all a lot worse. remember that motley crew one without you i mean that's a terrible <laughs> so really cheesy one, there's there a lot of really bad, bad ones so there's a lot most, of bad you know i think well, guys you get a mulligan yeah, right. <laughs> An 80s mulligan. 
Guys, I'd be happy to see you play anything. I'm, I, I, I already knew the history behind that, so I had a little joke there with you guys. So, yeah, um, I'm not a guy that I'm not a guy that yells out songs at a gig. So, but anyway, thanks so much for coming on, Pat. Thank Pat, you, Pedro, yeah, Tim Mosher from thank Junkyard. Thanks, um, we'd like to have a part two with you guys. Yes, <laughs> the dog is like agrees. Guys, somewhere down Can I bring my cat in? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and because uh, there's so much more to talk about, but uh, we yes. want to thank you again, Pat and Tim. Uh, it's great to have thank you on you. the podcast. And before we much. let them go, Brian, um, real fast, let's do a little quick promotion. Sorry to cut you off. Where can where can we go for your website? Hear your stuff. Where do you want us to go and send the fans? Uh, that would be Junkyard Blues, and that's spelled B L O O Z E dot com, uh, or just uh, you know Google Junkyard and junkyard hollywood or junkyard blues and it'll pop up so okay. we're on we're gonna, facebook and all that stuff we're going to hear the new singles uh that will be coming out of i my guess is maybe april or something like that but that'll be at uh, acetate.com or just google acetate records we'll have links on our uh, all our social media accounts and stuff so go to their website they have some kick-ass merch get more in stock Thank you. A couple of the shirts i wanted we're not there yet but you guys have really cool looking merch so people go Thank buy you. it we got new stuff coming out too. We're working on. <laughs> All right. Thank you again, guys. Uh, Thank you. We have you get on in the future. Thanks. Thanks yeah. a lot. Yeah. Be safe, Thank guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you too. Well, all right. You know, uh, I cannot wait to talk to uh, Pat and Tim again. Uh, <laughs> Great guests. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's like all of a sudden, junkyard is like way up there on my totem pole for music. What uh, what's something you want to take out of that? Uh, first, I, w- I just want to reiterate, like my last couple of years of high school, there was five hard five bands on the constant rota- rotation for me: Black Crows, Aerosmith, Zeppelin, Pearl Jam, and Junkyard. Those are like the five bands that really, truly, like were my soundtrack. I think my my last few high school years. So it was great to talk to those guys. Um, what I took out of it is two things. One, I was glad to hear the story on. Uh, the Axl Rose wearing the junkyard T-shirt again because there was, like we said at the intro, a lot of lot of press photos of Axl wearing that shirt. And then our buddy uh, David from the Save America podcast specifically asked us to follow up on that question, which we did. So that was cool. And then just hearing that um, that era of of hard rock in the '80s and metal is really becoming popular again. And, and you know, when people are allowed to tour again, there's going to be a lot more shows of. The, of not just junkyard, but a lot of the bands that that were in their era too. So that's really good to hear, and I'm I'm looking forward to actually being able to listen to those guys live somewhere. How about you? Well, you know, obviously we had to ask them about you know them taking out you know the Crows for their first tour. You know, the Crows opening up for Junkyard, and uh, you know I just really appreciated what they said about them. You know, like you heard the story in in the chat there about. They go to the cat house to see him. It's like, who is this Black Crows? They sound like a death metal band. And they're like, holy shit, these guys are fucking good, man. But you a know? bunch and, of young, young bucks that are good, though. You know, yeah, young- and then saying, like, a little bit later on, all of a sudden they're doing their own headlining tour and they're bypassing us and everything. But uh, we had to pry for an anecdote. And, you know, uh, I don't know what your conclusion is that you draw when you hear it. But, you know, <laughs> Pat talking about showing those guys what not to do with a deli tray in the back so of their tour bus. What to do or what, what to, to do? Well, what to do, what not to do, yeah, you know, I mean, we'll, we'll let you draw your own conclusion, you know, what to do or what not to do with a deli tray in the back of their tour bus with certain quote-unquote guests. And so, I don't know, I don't know, 
I remember hearing a Zeppelin shark story. <laughs> That's probably not as bad as the shark story, but it's not really great. Oh, you know what it made me think of? So if anybody's a Howard Stern listener, back in his early, early days, used to take baloney and throw them at girls' rear ends in the studio, and that's what I imagined. That could be. That could be it. I hope it's as tame as that. And and then he said, you know, and then talking about, like, you know, they're talking the next day, you know, and that probably could be after any night. Like, oh, what happened last night? And then Jeff throwing up in the back of the (laughs) tour bus. So, yeah, I would imagine there are some rowdy and ruckus kind of events going on during that tour. Yeah, for sure. But it, it was good, really good to talk to those guys here that they're doing well. Making new music. I think we're going to have a new album that's supposed to come out. I hope so. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. And they're hoping, uh, well, we know for sure they'll have a single coming out here. And when they do, they're going to be back on. I promise that. So. Yeah. And I, if you haven't listened to that third unreleased album, which they just released in 19, it's called Old Habits Die Hard. Listen to it. It goes perfectly with that second album. It is a great fusion of blues. Uh, southern rock and, and hard rock i love it. i love those two albums yeah and you know it's just kind of is sad that you know like i can understand where when you know i guess what we're going to call grunge came into being um and you know it you know it's going to do away with certain you know kinds of music like yep. you know i understand like the the like the really watered down and kind of hair bands once again i don't like to use that that term but you know it is what it is and that's you know, a I, I, term you know everybody i can knows see that, that like you know like the like the fourth or fifth round of those kind of bands doing that music because it's popular and and all that but like i don't understand why why it had to like you know affect so negatively a band like junkyard and bands like them because i don't really see them as a, a separation really that much from that you know and that's just you know you know i don't know i've been thinking about a lot about you know like that kind of music that i used to listen to a lot and in these many years later like we are realizing how much some of those bands are really like just kind of sold like a commodity you know they, they isolated that genre out but that's a discussion for another time so you got anything else for the listeners no, it's just a great chat. I loved it, and I look forward to talking to him again. And on, on that note, always remember, Southern Rock is reverent, and Blues is blood. We'll see you next time. Just a-
Take a big swing. What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. And I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, 
You don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.